Turning Point Coaching and Consulting presents Kairos Conversations, Connecting with Quality, the podcast. Kairos is Greek for the right time, the right season, and the right opportunity. This podcast features healthcare quality professionals who share their journeys, their advice, their struggles, how they made that transition into a new and exciting role. My heart's desire is that you find this podcast to be inspirational to you as you make your own journey. Don't forget to share this podcast with your colleagues and friends and rate us on whichever podcast platform you listen to. Thank you for being here. I am super excited to kick off this next season with my friend, Tarika Wheeler. Tarika is a project management executive and a career and work-life strategist. In this two-part episode, we talk about her work in trauma. We talk about health equity and social determinants of health. We talk about work-life harmony and so much more. Because this is one of the longer episodes, I have divided it into two parts. And let me tell you, it is so worth listening to all the way to the very end of both episodes. You are going to love Tarika and all the gems she has to share. So stay tuned and enjoy the episode. Thank you again so much for being here, audience. I want to welcome my next guest, Tarika Wheeler. Thank you so much for being here, Tarika. Thank you so much, Brandy. I'm super excited to join you today. I'm so excited that you are here. So if you will start by sharing who you are and what you do with the audience. Absolutely. Well, my name is Tarika Wheeler, and I am the founder and CEO of T. Wheeler Strategic Solutions, and I'm also a career and work-life strategist. And I work with professionals, mostly women and working parents who are looking to advance in their careers, and I help them achieve their goals and design strategies to do so without sacrificing work-life harmony. So I'm really excited to join you today and to really, you know, dig into this conversation and, and my journey as a professional and uh, share with your audience. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you said that because that's how we connected with, with your personal branding and work-life harmony content. And we're going to get a lot more into that in a little bit, but I want for the audience to hear that you used to work in healthcare and what that looked like for you. Yeah. You know, my career started in healthcare. I actually started my career in a level one a pediatric Children's Hospital in Austin, Texas. And prior to getting into healthcare, I I wasn't really sure where I was going to be, you know, what I was going to be doing, where I was going to be. I actually had aspirations of being a pediatric oncology nurse. And then I had my daughter and I don't know, my emotions just changed. Things just went a different direction. And so I said, hmm, healthcare is still important to me. What else could I do? And so I started supporting our chief nursing officer as an executive administrative assistant and then had an incredible opportunity to start doing childhood injury prevention work within the trauma center. And that just grew. And it really allowed me to do some community-based work, but also do quite a bit of work within the hospital and within our trauma services. And then from there, I got a chance to take like that same experience in working in the hospital, you know, being on rounds, you know, like literally on clinical rounds in the PICU, in the NICU, um, on our acute care floors with our trauma surgeons and nurse practitioners 
providing injury prevention or patient safety education to our patient population and their their caregivers, but then also having an opportunity to like help design policies and help design programs at the community-based level. And then I moved to the DC area and had an opportunity to still work somewhat within the hospital setting. I worked for an organization that was a subsidiary of a trauma center and children's hospital in the Washington, D.C. area, but was just doing childhood injury prevention on a global uh, level. So healthcare has been at the foundation of my career. And honestly, I strive to stay like in that healthcare and health and human services space as a professional. So what did you learn about healthcare during that time? I'm sure you saw, now this was pre-COVID, but healthcare was struggling even then. So what did you learn or experience or see during your time working in trauma? You know, it's interesting. There's a couple of things that I saw in trauma that I, I, I would imagine is probably true for most trauma centers across the country. And one is that, you know, there's trauma and injury doesn't have a face. It really impacts any and everyone in our communities, right? However, while it doesn't have a face, there are definitely great disparities in how trauma presents itself within hospitals. And I think in being an injury prevention coordinator and working so closely with our trauma team, I got to see patients and their families in a different light. Right. So I saw very affluent families that would come through our our trauma services, you know, due to their child and whatever their injury that they presented with. But then I also saw families who were coming from marginalized communities, and that was a very different experience. So I think one of the things that I saw more and it helped me kind of key into was health disparities and the gap that I was seeing where the hospital is available to everyone. However, people may not see it as accessible or they may not have the same experience within the hospital. So I think that was probably the biggest thing is that it opened my eyes to health disparities. And it's one of the reasons why I'm really passionate about health equity, health disparities and social determinants of health, because I got to see it firsthand. So that was one thing I think that I saw. And then the other piece was that I have so many colleagues that are nurses, doctors, Uh, radiologists, techs, I mean, you name it. And I got to see the not so pretty side of healthcare and seeing my colleagues pre-COVID, right? And I remember checking up on them during COVID because I was just so concerned. Like you're seeing the images on, you know, TV and you're hearing about what's happening in these in, in these hospitals. And I was just like, oh my goodness, how are my people doing, right? How are my friends doing? But just seeing the dedication from healthcare professionals, but also how much they go through, how much they're exposed to, whether if it's the system that they're exposed to and where the system supports them, but also where there are gaps. And then also seeing their challenges providing bedside care and what that looks like. And it showed me a different side. I think as a patient, right, or like as a as a consumer, if you will, I've always seen my nurses and my doctors in a different way, right? So I have, I'm a mom of three, you know, I've had three children and my, I see my, my OBGYN in a, in a certain light. But when I started to really work in the hospital setting on the patient care side and with, you know, those who were bedside at, it gave me a totally different perspective in what healthcare professionals are, are going through. And imagine that was pre-COVID 
during COVID and post COVID, it's a totally different landscape. So I, I have such a profound respect for those who are working within healthcare and quite frankly, those who choose to stay because there's so much work to be done. There's so many things that are needed, not only just for the patients, but just for that space as a whole. Yeah. And that kind of goes into your work with work-life harmony too, because healthcare workers are taught to kind of push down all their emotions, everything going on at home, everything that's going on with them personally to take care of the patient. Mm -hmm. And the patient becomes first. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that healthcare worker becomes an afterthought. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, like you said, that was going on pre-COVID, but COVID just showed that in a greater light, all that was happening with that healthcare professional. Yeah, no, I think you're so right. And I think... One of the things that, you know, I used to watch the residents that were in the hospital and, you know, they they could be all, as long as they were not contagious, but they were dragging themselves sick as a dog because you could not miss a day, right? It's, 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 not, it's not happening. If you were in your, you know, your pediatric rotation or you were doing a rotation with trauma or whatever it was, and I watched that and I used to think like, wow, like watching that on TV was one thing, but seeing that in real life was another. And I'm like, what is that doing for them as a professional that they feel like they can't, or they know that they can't miss a day? And what is that doing for them physically and psychologically and emotionally? And it just, again, I got a chance to see the other side, you know, the nurses who are working parents who, you know, have school age children and they're working 12 hour shifts and then they're asked to pick up another shift. Or if we think about in the pandemic time, there was no ask. You were working these additional shifts until we had relief for others to come on. And I'm like, wow, what does that do for the other pieces of your life? Like, what does that do for your family, for your your physical well-being and health and wellness and fitness? And what does that do for like your leisure and self-care? And so I think it's really important. And I, I know you've got several folks in your audience who, you know, they're, they're, they're bedside and they're, they are within um, healthcare systems that we find ways to establish a standard of work-life harmony. What is, and, and a standard that is going to work for you as an individual. And then of course, for your family and that aligns with the culture within your institution. And when you feel like that's challenged, find safe spaces to have those conversations and support one another. Because I'm sorry, I don't know about you, but I need my nurses and my doctors and my respiratory therapists and everybody, like I need you to be in a good space. I need you, 100%. To, need you to be joyous and happy with life. I need you to have a certain bedside manner. I need your mindset to be in a certain place. And if you are not setting a standard for work-life harmony for yourself, I believe that that directly and indirectly impacts our healthcare systems and the care that our that patients are receiving. All because those who are delivering that care or monitoring that care, we're forgetting that they are human beings and they need a sense of work-life harmony. Hi, friend. Are you listening to this podcast wondering how you can start your own journey into healthcare quality? Or maybe you've already started, but you're hitting some roadblocks and getting stuck at the application process. Well, my friend, I've got a free resource for you. After you finish listening to this episode, head on over to my website and grab the ebook, Top Three Mistakes Clinicians Make When Transitioning into a Non-Clinical Role. 
The link will be in the show notes section. Now, enjoy the rest of the episode. Something you said earlier, I want to touch on so we don't uh, forget about it. But you said that healthcare, the hospital, the trauma center that you were working for was available to everyone, right? But not everyone accessed it. And I think what some people don't realize is that healthcare systems, hospitals are not the place of healing for everybody. Uh Every demographic group does not perceive the healthcare system as a place that they want to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, I can think back to patients that came, you know, into our, our, our hospital and came into trauma services in particularly and were under our, you know, our team's care and their families felt uncomfortable. Like they, they didn't see this as a place of healing. They saw this as a place of stress and anxiety. They saw it as a place that's now generating another medical bill or another bill period that they have no idea how they're going to pay. They see it as a place of of reflection where perhaps it's taking them back to even some of their own childhood trauma. I just, I think that while to your point, seeing some people see the hospital as a place of healing, but others see it through a very different light, which and then in my, in my opinion, impacts if I see that hospital being accessible to me, right? Is uh-huh. that, am, I, am I going to feel judged for the way I show up in that hospital? Or am I going to have some type of, of penalty that, you know what, I just don't need one more thing. It's, it's the reason why in some, you know, cultures, people don't go to the doctor. I remember a whole campaign, I believe it was like with the Tom Dorner morning show, but it was like, take your loved ones to work day or take your loved ones to the doctor day. And it was all about getting older adults and particularly in communities of color to primary care physicians, because there was just this breakdown in, well, I don't go to the doctor until I am sick, sick. Mm-hmm. Bleeding, about to die. Exactly. Like I literally am on my last limb here, right? Versus seeing preventative care and having a primary care practitioner that is monitoring you and knows your health care, knows your, your history and your background and is caring for you and seeing that as preventative care. And I think Again, it's just because of the lens that we see it. So that's where equity comes in as well, right? So it's like, we all have access. We all have the ability to go, but the way we perceive that particular hospital or that clinic or what have you also has to do with, do I think that that's accessible to me, right? What are my beliefs about the healthcare system? What are my beliefs about that hospital? How does that going to impact me? Do I take and use gas to drive to the doctor or do I use that gas to go to work? Do I take the money that I need to go get a prescription or do I use a home remedy because I need that money to buy groceries? And those are real things that are happening in this country and communities all, all around, you know, all around. And I, I just, I think it's it's a area that we have to, in my opinion, addressed systematically. And I think there's some some barriers and some silos that have to be broken down between the healthcare system and communities, especially marginalized communities. Yeah, and that just brought something to my mind. You think about the typical doctor's office is open 8.30 to 5, maybe 8 to 5. Mm-hmm. Um, you think about 
someone who works who can't take off from work to go to their doctor's appointment, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. Or they're going to be penalized at their job or by their boss or perceived different way. Or even mm-hmm. if their boss lets them go, they have to do it without pay, mm-hmm. right? Or, mm-hmm. or maybe they have PTO and they'd rather use their PTO for a sick day for their child or for mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. else. That, those are real choices that people are having to make on whether or not they feel they can access the healthcare system that's available. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, again, that's where social determinants of health really comes in. And it really is where we live and eat and play and learn. And, you know, all of that impacts the choices that are being made. And I I just, I saw that all the time, you know, being in trauma, of course, I was an injury prevention coordinator. And so our charge, if you will, and I loved our, our trauma surgeon because he used to say, you know, every child who is admitted to this hospital or comes in with an injury is a failure of our injury prevention efforts. And he didn't say that from a negative space, but like our job is to put trauma centers out of business, right? Like from an injury prevention perspective, like we want to educate families and caregivers on things that they can do in order to prevent kids from presenting in the hospital. We know accidental injuries or unintentional injuries are the leading cause of death of kids after their first birthday. How do we change that number, right? How do we shift that? And I can think about, you know, the many a times that a parent would say, well, I wasn't spending, you know, 15 or $20 on a bike helmet. Right. Right. You now have a medical bill that, you know, is whatever that amount is. And the the hospital that I work with in Austin, um, you know, treated and saw every child regardless of their ability to pay. Right. So we saw the uninsured, the underinsured, the insured. But so many families, whether if it was the child who came in who was not restrained or under restrained, the child who came in who was not wearing a bike helmet, the child who came in that was on an ATV or was operating some type of lawn equipment and shouldn't have been, whatever it may be. So many times I would hear from families about the choice. Now, when we gave them a free bicycle helmet or gave them a car seat or you know, subsidize the cost of a car seat so that they could invest in that and have a vested interest and connection to that um, that car seat for their child. They were grateful and they were willing. But before then, and before this incident that caused their child to come into the hospital, they made a choice. It oftentimes, I'm telling you, Brandy, it wasn't that people didn't know. It was the choice that they had to make because it was this or that. Right. Dinner or car seat. Right. Right. Lunch or helmet. Not, you know, not not being able to like leaving my kids at home and unfortunately them having to cook dinner for themselves because I have to go to work or them having to cook breakfast for themselves because I'm gone. And, you know, in the morning, whatever it may be, a lot of times and again, we're we're setting aside like child maltreatment and things of that nature. But A lot of times it wasn't that parents didn't know. It was a choice that they had to make because of their circumstances. And that's real in healthcare. And I believe it puts a stress and a burden on healthcare workers because you are consistently seeing and treating the same types of injuries or illnesses that are coming through, especially when you know, from a trauma perspective, you know, a lot of that could be preventable. And I think that wears and tears on healthcare workers who are working in that field and in that space. Right. When you just repeatedly see something over and over again and you know that it can be prevented and you're seeing these poor health outcomes in particular communities. Right. All because 
either there was a, a desire to, but not the resources to do it, the knowledge and awareness that was needed, but had to make a choice, right? Or other social determinants of health that made an impact in, in, what, in what they chose to do. So it's very real. It's very real. Those are the very tough decisions that communities are making. And unfortunately, as healthcare workers, when we see it over and over, like you're saying, we sometimes put a label on that person or that community because of what we thought they should do based on what we know, yeah. right? What we see and what we told them and, you know, how we gave them the education and maybe we thought we did it well and we did teach back and all of these things. And then this event situation still happens. Uh-huh. And so we put this label on them, which then further affects how we're caring for them. So it then repeats yeah. itself. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's that institutional kind of bias that gets built that causes so many challenges, causes so many issues, even in care. It's why I love, you know, initiatives in hospitals that are focused on, you know, um, like their standard procedures of care, right? Like just really helping healthcare workers because we're human. Mm -hmm. We are. Right. So we, we need standards and we need pathways to guide what we do. Because if not, our human nature will kick in, right? Our in our the way we experience this world will kick in. And so having those standards of care, having various pathways, like all of those things, I think is helpful. I, I am so I'm always so amazed at how healthcare systems are evolving and the things that are put in place to support and help providers and practitioners support patients. Because I, it's difficult. And I, I've, while I had aspirations to be a nurse and to, to be in that space and I, and I never was able to, to, to really move that forward. I, I, I love that I had, you know, nearly seven years of my career being in the hospital bedside, whether if I was a, you know, working in my role as an injury prevention coordinator, or even before that, when I was supporting our um, chief nursing officer, who was over all the acute and critical care units, or even when I was a clinical assistant on a pediatric oncology floor, like I've had so many opportunities to be exposed to healthcare on the other side. And I just think like, I'm grateful for how things are evolving, but you know, we're, we're, I don't think we're there yet. I, I think many, and probably you included given your role, I, I think there's so much left to be done. And there's so many things that are needed for both those who are working directly within healthcare so that they can better support and have the outcomes that they want to see of their patients. Absolutely. So when you made that transition from trauma, working at a trauma hospital to working specifically with health equity, and I believe it was in the um, nonprofit space, uh-huh, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. The first was in nonprofit and then I went into the federal side. I went into the public sector. So what kind of work were you doing with health equity when you left trauma? Yeah. So when I left trauma, um, I had an opportunity to work for a global nonprofit organization that's still focused on childhood injury prevention. But I'm more shifted from, you know, not, you know, walking around with a pager. Oh, my gosh, a pager. (laughs) (laughs) It tells our age. I remember a pager. Oh, my goodness. Like literally had a pager on my hip. And um and then we we moved to phones, which was great, but not walking around with the pager and being, you know, having to go to a particular unit and, you know, provide education and chart on patients. And I got to move into the programmatic side and really 
develop and design childhood injury prevention programs and campaigns for community-based coalitions that were around the country and even around the world. And so the equity piece in that was that when we looked at the numbers, when we looked at the data and we're looking at, well, who are the kids that are impacted the most? We were seeing that a lot of the drownings or pedestrian injuries or bike injuries or motor vehicle collisions, and we're looking at the numbers and and, and the data, it's showing us that it's mostly, we saw those higher numbers in children of color. We saw that Black and African-American children, Hispanic children, American Indian, Alaska Native children were injured and or were dying at disproportionate rates than their white counterparts. And so for me, that was like, the beginning of that health equity work for me because I was seeing those great disparities. So we already knew, period, across the country, unintentional injury is the leading cause of death for kids after their first birthday. But when you really dug into, you kind of took a deep dive and got into the data and you saw who was impacted the most, I'm like, wow, why are black and brown children drowning more? Why are black and brown children presenting in emergency departments because they were not restrained in car seats more. What is that about? And it helped me to really dig a little bit deeper and really think about it a little bit differently. And while it was childhood injury prevention work, it also was health equity work for me because I wanted to see improved outcomes of all children, but I especially wanted to see improved outcomes for children in marginalized communities. Right. And that was that was kind of the start. And then it just kind of grew from there. I was in that global I was at the global nonprofit for almost four years. And then I changed career paths altogether and um, went into management consulting and started doing um, work in the public sector as a government contractor, but still working in a health equity space, which was awesome. And starting to dig a bit deeper into how are we communicating to minority communities and those who work with and serve minority communities around prevention messaging and access to care messaging and thinking about the um, then passed Affordable Care Act and what that meant for uh, access to to healthcare and to um, insurance and all types of things. So it broadened my my work quite a bit. So it wasn't just around childhood injury. It was everything, right? What are what are the areas where we see some of the greatest disparities in uh, racial and ethnic minority communities. So is that where your PMP um, comes into play? Yeah. So when I first went into the public sector, I, I started working as a communications manager and um, that lasted for about a year. And I got promoted to being deputy director of the project that I was supporting. And that was from 2018 to 2020, just right at the the height of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And then I had an opportunity and was promoted to project director. But in 2019 is when I got my PMP. And it's so interesting because I had been doing program and project management for years. I mean, for years, I've been, I mean, over, if I look back over the totality of my career, I've been doing program and project management for 20 years. You were doing it as an injury prevention specialist. Just, as an injury prevention. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, and, a lot, and I utilized a lot of that, right, as my experience and expertise and my application to get my PMP. But I got my PMP in 2019 and that was a game changer for me, honestly. It really did open up a lot of opportunity for me professionally, but it also 
just gave some validation to a lot of the work that I had been doing already. Um, I, I was already doing things like strategic planning within uh, when I was in Texas and even when I came to DC. And so pairing that with the health communication work that I was doing and the health equity work that I was doing, program and project management that I was already doing, getting my PMP just kind of brought that all together. And so I have been managing strategic communications, uh, public health and IT projects um, for the past six years. And I've, and I, and I love it. I think it's, and, and I've done it mostly in the public sector, but I am always thinking about ways that I can enter back into that healthcare space or in the nonprofit space as well, because I think there's just an opportunity for, for so much impact, but yeah, I, it was a, it was a, it was a very interesting transition for me, but I am a very mission driven person. And so I like to work in spaces where I know the work that I'm doing is not just going to a bottom line. I know that the work that I'm doing has a larger impact and I have the ability to influence the impact that's being made. And that's really what the past few years of my career has allowed me to do. I think that's a lot of my audience too. So for those who are interested in the project management professional um, certification, what would you say to them? Like, who is it for? Who is it not for? Do you recommend it? Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, Honestly, Brandy, project management is a discipline, mm-hmm. right? So the PMP is simple, that's a certification. It's a global, renowned, respected certification in the project management discipline, right? So you can get your PMP and a wealth of other, you know, certifications up under the Project Management Institute. But becoming a certified project management professional is, I think, a, a very tangible path for professionals that are transitioning from you know nursing from teaching from banking and sales being an executive assistant like there's so many transferable skills in those roles that I believe serve in the project management space right so I definitely think that it's it's for anyone who is very interested in processes and how things get done that is very interested in and in, in good at working with people for tackling a common goal or scope, right, of a particular project or initiative. It's for those who like to start and end things, right? So projects begin and they end. And a lot of us, you know, that's uncomfortable. It's like, I need something that is continuous and that is for the long haul, but a project has a beginning and an end. And you can have a project within a project, but it has a beginning and an end. So it's for those who, you know, like, to kind of work in that space where you know that you have a beginning and you're able to initiate that um, project. You're able to plan that project and monitor and control it. You're able to look at risk and communications. And when you're doing that right now in your current field, know that you have transferable skills to do that in project management. There's hardly an industry in this country or around the world that is not seeking individuals to be project managers. And quite frankly, if you think about in healthcare, you want someone who has a healthcare background to come in and be a PM. Why? Because you don't need to teach them how it works. You don't need to teach them how it works. Like for you to come into a hospital system and try to be a project manager, it's not that it's not doable because it is. 
But it's going to be a little bit of an uphill battle because working in healthcare or working in a healthcare system is very different from working in the federal government. It's very different from working in, you know, a nonprofit or working in sales or working in construction, right? It is a different animal. It is a different beast. The the hierarchy and Uh chain of command is very different. It's, you know, I had a a dear friend, he is um, a nurse practitioner and used to talk about like the healthcare system being like the army. He's like, there's a rank (laughs) and I need you to understand (laughs) that who you may think is running things is not necessarily running things. Um, One of my favorite oncologists, he used to say, oh, I just work here. My, My nurses keep my patients. Like I, I, I just, I work here. I come in, I write the orders. I make sure that we're on the right path. But the person who's caring for my patients, who's really in control is this charge nurse right here. That's who's in control, right? So there's all these different dynamics. But I think when you can understand that, when one is looking to transition out of like patient care, right? There's so many things that you can work with and you can work in compliance and quality control, which I know that is a space that is absolutely in alignment with the work right right there, right? Like (laughs) like you, like that quality and and compliance space is huge and takes a lot of project management principles and disciplines to really do that work. You can transition from being at the bedside or, you know, being a practitioner and going into project management and literally managing initiatives that are happening within the hospital. So I remember when, I was working at the Children's Hospital. We were transitioning from handwritten like notes. Paper paper documentation. Right, paper documentation, handwritten. They were yellow. You go, you put it in a little machine, put the little stamp on it with the patient card, all the things, right? I am probably like dating myself, but like that's what I remember. Picking up the little yellow sheet of paper, like scrolling the name across for the patient card that they got from admissions and doing my my notes, right? And everybody had these little binders and we had these little bookshelves on the unit and that's where your notes went. To then switching into Cerner and being in a now medical record system and tracking system and documentation system that was electronic. Right. Right. And seeing that evolve, that was a project in itself. And there was a project manager who was brought in to oversee that. Now, can you imagine if that project manager had the background of actually being a nurse or wow. had the background of being a clinician? A clinician right. A therapist, can you imagine? A nurse, a a therapist, right. Absolutely. A case manager. Can you imagine? So, you know, it's so funny. And I'll say this. Sorry for those you guys who are listening. The last people who actually went to the electronical medical record and documentation were the physicians. They oh, were the they say group. the doctors. <laughs> They're the last group. Because, you know, they was kicking and screaming like, what is this, right? They were the last ones. But can you imagine if the project manager was a clinician, was a, was a physician? Right. It would have went and, over a lot better. It would have been relatable to the people that they were trying to reach. Absolutely. Because all the physicians would say, well, you, don't, you, don't, you don't understand why this is going to be a challenge, right? You don't understand why we are pushing back. Now, this day and age, 2023, help me find a hospital that is doing everything still by hand. I'm sure there are some that are potentially out there that are, and that's, of course, always the backup when systems go down. But I'm sure there's physicians and clinicians and practitioners of all the sorts who just can't even remember a time where they were writing on paper. But again, those types of change initiatives Uh are being led 
by or or can be led by a project manager. And it's an incredible value add if you have worked in the healthcare system in one of those roles that is impacted. If you are a person who would essentially have been impacted by that change, you will bring an incredible amount of insight and value to that healthcare system or that hospital who's trying to make the change. So I I think project management, especially from those who are transitioning in the healthcare space, it's very much transferable and, and, and people should see that as an accessible career path. Tarika is a gem, isn't she? Stay tuned for part two of this value packed episode next week. See you there. Thank you so much for listening to the show. It would mean a lot if you would share this episode with a friend or a colleague. I would be honored to encourage them in their journey too.